thank you very much. I'm really delighted to be here, um, and um, for a number of reasons, not just that you know I can uh, celebrate the fact that Rutledge thought these volumes worth reprinting. You know, it's something, isn't it? Uh, and they've now appeared as a trilogy, which is rather nice. You know, the, the original series was 90, the first volume was 95, second volume was which was mainly shorter pieces and excerpts. Then 99, 1999, I did, uh, it's confusingly called volume one. It's this novel, Sunshine and Shadow, and, and a, 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 it's not really a novel, but a, you know, a, a kind of satire called The Political Pilgrim's Progress by to Thomas Doubleday, which I will mention in, in a second, something about that. And then two years later, Ernest Jones's rather interesting Woman's Wrongs, which you know I do recommend. I mean, if this, if Joe's talk, which I hope has, has you know, got your taste buds going for Chartist fiction, uh, Woman's Wrongs is very interesting. I, I won't go into it here, but uh, so it's great. It's just it's it's great to hear Joe speaking again because in a way I owe meeting Joe. Uh, Chartism is how we met, you might say. Uh, when Joe was working actually on, and this is, Lester was in the days of Sally, of course, as you said earlier, um, on uh, the Book of Murder, you know, the Marcus, uh, the kind of underground Marcus pamphlet. Uh, and Sally had just started, I think, uh, you know, stuff on Dickens and radicalism. This was back in the mid 90s or something. Um, and I think you decided that the Book of Murder was written by Doubleday. I think you've, did you? I thought it was Yeah, yeah. Same author as Political Pilgrims, Pilgrims Progress. But what I was going to say was welcome home. Yes. <laughs> Very appropriate spatial metaphor as we come back, come back to charting. Whereas, of course, old hacks like me have never really left it. Uh, and I will say at the end, it is appropriate to this talk, where, where I'm next speaking about chartism. There's two places, I, and I, I'll, I'll keep you in suspense about that, yeah, coming up this summer. Um, um, it's a great, so Joe's own distinctive brand, you know, of, of, of such sophisticated reading is such a great boost, you know, for, for the Chartist novel. That's, that's the first thing I wanted to say. Uh, and when I think of Joe's uh, talk today in relation to these three or four major sorts of treatments that have come out in the last few years, Van den Bosch, Margaret Luce's uh, treatment, Rob Breton, who I don't think you mentioned, you know, Rob Breton's got a book called Oppositionless Aesthetics in the Chartist novel. I mean, I was a reader for it uh, and suggested he, he change the title. So it's something like Oppositional Aesthetics. And then Greg Vargo, who's writing on Chartism and Empire. So he's very interested in the West Indies bit, of, uh, you know, which rightly sort of didn't go into of, of Sunshine and Shadow. And, um, and I think what, what all this work is doing, but Joe's in particular, because it's so sophisticated, is bringing out the importance of form. You know, uh, Mike Sanders has, um, or radical aesthetics, to quote uh, Isabel, of course. Uh, Mike Sanders talks about, in his book on Chartist poetry, the political effect of poetical affect. If you remember that, a nice little way of putting it. And I think now, Joe, we could add the political effect of narrative affect in a sense, couldn't we hear? That's what uh, I, I, I hear. And that, so I think it's appropriate in a response to, to say what I think are the great strengths of Joe's approach. And that there's, there's, there's two I particularly want to pick up on. One is, one is this uh, embedding the story back in the periodical context of the Northern Star. So to say a bit about what I, what I think about that in relation to sort of periodical studies, which are the sort of world I also move into to some extent, the RSVP world. And then secondly, this notion of the political picaresque and this idea of movement 
what you call um, the literature of moving, I think, in your talk, or uh, certainly the script version I've got, the literature of moving. And I'd just like to invert that, actually, to start with, which is moving literature, because I think it is moving in all kinds of ways. Uh, 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 and sort of, there's a sense of sort of privilege of being able to read this stuff. Uh, but being, being moved by what we read uh, in, in this political context, I think is, is significant. One of the things Wheeler says, I mean, I called it Chartist Love Story, because one of the things he, 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 he says is that, you know, Chartists have feelings. It's, it's back to sensibility, basically. And if you think of how sensibility was used in, say, anti-slavery campaigns, this is, this is a, a, a mark of being human. Uh, that qualifies you for a franchise as well, that you've got a full kind of range of emotional responses. Okay, you know, the novel is not written in, in a kind of naturalistic way, I think also makes it interesting, but nevertheless, he states that as one of the aims, you know, is to, is, is to be moved both within and beyond, it seems to me, book. But okay, so the real strength of Joe's talk, um, this... Um, it is, I'm glad you said it's a remarkable novel. I mean, I, th I, I do think that. I, I, I called it the first working class novel. Maybe we could talk about that later. But there isn't really a precedent for it. There's a sense as you read it of, of Wheeler almost making up the rules as it goes along. You know, it's, it's in formation. Uh, this, so, so this constant sort of shifting, you know, tone, location, mode of address, self-reflection, foregrounding of gaps, defensiveness, if you want to put it that way, self-justification, these are all marks of a kind of emergent voice, aren't they, that bears a very heavy responsibility, goodness, you know, for the history of the movement. And, and it's a sort of impossible genre, in a sense. I think when I say impossible, in the sense that Tyler McDeasy talks about, you know, William Blake, the impossibility of history, but since it's a kind of impossible genre, it's never going to work, it's never going to fully materialise, as Joe said, it can't. Um, but that's not Wheeler's fault, in a sense, you know, Wheeler is the trigger, or, you know, he's the carrier, I think, of, of the movement's sort of history and, and future. So, so that shifting from story to reportage is what we're interested in, isn't it, from, from, from kind of narrative to another discourse. And I think this is where the embedding in the periodical context becomes really interesting, the journalistic origins of the story in which Joe sees a kind of homology between print culture and movement, the movement of peoples. As you put it, so I get a chance to quote you now because I've got the script, yes. Um, migration and print exist in a symbiotic relationship. And that's true of possibly all periodicals, but you say it's more, in this relationship is more intense and insistent in the Chartist press and in the mainstream press, and I would agree with that, because, you know, for the Chartists, the press carried such agency. Uh, didn't it? It was absolutely central to the whole consciousness and organisation of the movement. Uh, the movement. I mean, there's so much slippage in, in the language I'm using all the time here, of course. Um, so, the technology of the page, um, I mean, I've done some of that work myself, you know, this lateral reading, which I think is brilliantly, absolutely brilliantly done. This sense that um, the story was porous to the, to the adjacent columns. You know. Now, you can do some really ingenious readings, it kind of periodical studies does that a lot now. I suppose you could say it's possibly more conscious in such a political newspaper like the Northern Star, you know. I mean, when you pick up, say, a copy of The Guardian now and you've got a story about 
it's a tragedy in Syria, and next to it an advert for a, for a new Toyota. You know, how will, how will historians of the political read that? Will they say that's double standards, or, you know, it's commodification, except, you know, I mean, it's, it's kind of tricky one. Where does one draw the limit of moving across and between those columns? I mean, I think it's sort of something... So, so you think of Matthew Rubri's book, um, not The Novelty of Newspapers, you know, uh, where he claims, doesn't he, the novel took some of its genres and discourses from, from, the, from, from the newspapers. But I think it's different here because, in a sense, they're on a continuum, aren't they? I think, you know, the story and the, and the, the reportage are on a continuum. It's almost like the story is doing the same thing by other means. It's a kind of, it's a kind of higher journalism, if you want to put it that way. I also think, one thing Joe didn't mention, but we might reflect on, is, is the readership here and the sense of what are the reader's expectations of this, you know, of, 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 of this. I mean, is it, is it, is it, is it sort of, um, exists in a different realm, think, oh goodness, now I can enjoy the story. Well, if, if they thought that, they'd actually for a huge mistake, because the story is as demanding and challenging and as political as the columns, you know. But I think also this sense of a mixing of forms that goes on, which, I mean, tr the first left-wing critics to look at this st stuff by the Chartists were highly critical of this, because they were really judging it by what we call bourgeois. Mm -hmm. It doesn't stand in mixing people like it, it doesn't, you know, the, the characters are sort of two-dimensional and, you know, and the story's all over the place and doesn't have that sense of, sense of linear form. And thank goodness we've got to get away from that. But, I, you know, how radical is that? You know, because there's a sense in which you could argue the, shifting, the shift from, here's a bit of narrative, now let's have the bit of doctrine, you know, the reminder of the cause, you know, and so on. Almost that's reassuring rather than unsettling, isn't it? You see what I mean? That, that's maybe what they wanted. They didn't want to drift too far away from the charts of the Chartist discourse or the Chartist narrative. So this kind of flitting around, and I say flitting quite intentionally in a way, because it's another term to do with movement, but it also reminds me of John Clare's famous poem, Flitting, which he's very upset moving three miles, you know, from Helpstone to the next village, and it's like a wrench, you know. Um, the other issue is that, by re because it's read in the newspaper, it's kind of live, in a sense, isn't it? So the newspaper exists in this continuous present, which I think is interesting, and adding that to your temporal discussion, isn't it? There's a sense in which, which you read a newspaper, it's live in the moment. At what point does it become, then, some kind of archive, you know, uh, week by week? Um, on the point of, you made of um, the, the, the importance of now embedding these stories back in their original context and I took them out of course for those volumes um, and it's and it's and I in a way that made them consumable didn't it and sort of accessible and now it's nice to see they're coming back in a sense with because of digital technology which I didn't have the use of when I was when I was doing that but I think there is another issue there which is how would you really like to read these stories would you like to read 39 uh, facsimile, facsimiles of the front page of Northern Star with all those distractions. You know, I mean, that is a really interesting question, isn't it? I'm not sure we do, to be honest. We'd probably read it in my edition first and then go back and look at the adjacent column. You know. But I want, wanted to mention that in terms of the authority of the text. Um, so as I say, this, this kind of unplaceability um, of, of the text that Joe talks about, does carry this sense of it's a live text 
thinking things through, even though it's about the history of Chartism, it is a kind of live text. And the political unconscious is, is not yet repressed. I mean, it's sort of out there, exposed on the page. You know, it may get repressed in the bourgeois novel, but it certainly isn't repressed here. And I'll come back to the bigger, the sort of afterlife, as Joe put it later. So that's something on the journalistic uh, aspect of, you know, putting it, seeing it as a, as, a, as a form of journalism. The second is your term, political picaresque, which I found very uh, thought-provoking. I'm sure other people did. You know, they, this, this idea of, 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 of the whole narrative being based on exclusion. Um, and the first thing that I was thinking about was other examples of this, yeah. you know, at the time. And the one that comes to mind is, is Reynolds, of course, Mysteries of London, which I knew it wouldn't be long before I mentioned Reynolds, of course. You know. um, I'll come back to that briefly then. Uh, the second point about this is, uh, so, so building on your idea of this kind of fluidity of form uh, and the instability of form matching the kind of narrative. Um, another, uh, other ways of possibly thinking about that, following on from your... Uh, uh, conception is, is maybe seen Morton, Arthur Morton, as one of what, he, what Engels called a typical character in a typical circumstance, with the triumph of realism. If that's the case, then you could maybe play up the revolutionary credentials and timing of the novel a bit more, you know, because it starts in March 49, just as the sort of tide of counter reaction is, you know, taking its hold of it across Europe. Um, so, he, he, you know, the, the, the idea of the political refugees, you said the emigre, not, not, not the immigrant, I think is, is quite strong. If you add on the Irish famine, you know, the diaspora, and I'm sure you will be in your, in your city. I guess I was thinking of it as a kind of war novel in that sense. It's a war novel where he's a, he's, he's a kind of foot soldier. And it's, of course, mainly a social and political war, to, again, to quote Engels. But so is Wheeler. And these weekly communings, he called the chapters weekly communings. And, and, and someone might want to pick up on the word communion because I'm not quite sure what it, what it means, I haven't done any research on that, but those are his weapons. So what I want to, what I want to add to your propulsive metaphors, mm -hmm. yeah, as you call them, is, an, is a notion of mobilisation, not just mobility, so mobilisation. Yeah. Diaspora is a root of political dis dissemination. So if, if, we, if I just run with the idea of mobilisation for a minute and link it to the land plan, Joe's quite right to say the land plan was conceived as a kind of radical form of settlement, or as a kind of ideological vanguardism, in which urban enlightenment is brought to the peasantry. So what I wanted to just add to your analysis here was that, yes, the, these suggest it was a completely blank slate, you know, and I think Markham Chase says a lot of this land he got cheaply, O'Connor, because the, uh, uh, the, the, the Corn Law, you know, the end of the Corn Laws meant that, that, that a lot of... Uh, Landowners were trying to get rid of like, some land because it wasn't very productive anymore. But it nevertheless suggests that there's no one there first. But really, settling, as we know, always implies taking someone else's land. And so what I'm interested in is a quote in chapter 35, which is a land plan chapter of Sunshine and Shadow, where it says, Arthur saw in them, that's the settlers, the leaven that was to infuse light and activity into the benighted population, into the benighted population, by which they were surrounded that's the settlers, and ultimately become the regenerators of our agricultural population. Much more political project there, isn't it? The repetition of population, which is awkward. If it was a student essay, you put repetition here. I wonder if that's because there's a slight anxiety there about the fact there's already a population there, and you are settling them. Um, 
So that's the first thing I want to say. This regeneration also, I think, uh, yeah, is, is not... I mean, you're right to a large extent, Joe, to say it was seen as supplementary to the Mainz as a charter, but in fact, there were arguments being made in the early 18, in, from 1847 onwards that, in fact, uh, moving into one of these beautiful um, plots, these buildings, would actually get you the qualification under the 1832 reform bill of a £10 yeah, you, you would actually be, be enfranchised. Now, I'd like to point to another story, which you'll find in the first collection, Literature of Struggle, for this. Uh, in, the, in, the, in, the, in a periodical called The Labourer, which was Ernest Jones and Ferguson Turner's <coughs> real propaganda for the land plan, it's called The Labourer. There's a short story that I put in that first volume called The Charter and the Land. And this is, about, and this is a much, much better, in a way, insight into the, the utopian dimension of um, of the land plan than Wheeler and writing slightly later when you know the signs are there that it's not working. And this concerns a working class family from Stockport, you know, in the south of Manchester, isn't it? The father is uh, one of these broken artisan figures I've written about and he's turned to drink. Uh, but uh, he, he reforms when he hears about the land plan and you know the, the, the shilling he would have spent on booze he puts into land plan. They're looking enough to win. So they move from Stockport to O'Connor, uh, try doing that journey now, by the way, in Virgin <laughs> <laughs> Just as long as it did then. Um, by the way, O'Connor is near Rickmansworth, and I, I will, uh, it, it, you know, that's, that's obviously an idealisation of it. Um, so it's a form of inner emigration, Manchester to Watford, but that's, that's the journey they make. Um, what it says in this story is that the land plan creates a, quote, small propriety proprietary class, small proprietary class, and this gives the reconstituted patriarchal family, which is absolutely core to that whole, you know, Chartist vision, um, legitimacy and indeed voting rights, and so he's so happy to wake up on the first morning and he says, you know, I'm off to the local vestry meeting because I've now got, you know, I've now got voting rights. So, um, so it seems to me that, that the, the plot, yeah. you know, is the, is the building block, in that sense, you know, of, of the, <coughs> these weekly communings. The, 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 I mean, they're remarkably short, these chapters, you know, maybe a thousand words. Those are the plots out of which, he, you see what I mean? I'm trying to just add another level to the homology. Um, so I'm not sure it's scalar confusion. In fact, in some ways you argued it wasn't say, scalar confusion. Yeah, yeah. There, was a, there was a fit between the, the small and the large. I also think, you know, these garden plots, playing with the word, um, migrate out into literary culture. I mean, you know, it becomes the basis of our discipline in a sense, if one thinks about the, the place of organicism in liberal humanism, seems to me. I mean, I know that's been discredited, or to, you know, to a large extent, but, you know, Levis, the whole Levis side, took notion of the wheelwright shop, and the Adam Bede, you know, uh, I'm just thinking, you know, the basis of novelistic naturalism. So it is, it is you know, abs absolutely kind of central. But the same chapter, if you go and have a look at it, chapter 35, is split into two, and you've got this bit on the lamp line. Then you've got a bit on the city. Yeah, the second half of that chapter is, yeah. is actually on the, the kind of ideology of the city. Where, and this is a quote, where capital and its interests penetrates every fibre of the social frame. And quote, the enemy has been so long in the ascendant that he has a fortified camp in every guild, an army in every abuse, sentinels and guards, even in the heart of the army of progress, 
There is a traitor even in every man's heart. And what I wanted to there, pick up there again to add to your analysis is that trope of occupation. You know, the enemy camped in everyone's heart. It's a great yeah. trope for our ideology, isn't it? Contra contradictions of ideology. Um, and um, also, it, it, on your notion of occupation, I, I'm not, I slightly disagree that it doesn't carry any of the um, suggestions of you know, the Occupy movement and political yeah. protests, because uh, in um, uh, just a monster meeting itself, the idea of the monster meeting was all about occupying public, <coughs> public space, wasn't it? Public space, you know, Kennington Common. Uh, in fact, the, 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 uh, the famous photograph that was etched, uh, etched in the Illustrated of London News shows all these gaps. But I have uh, Fabrice, uh, what's his name? a French historian, a mate of mine who's always at the Chartism events, has been to the Royal Collection and looked at the other, the other negative, which showed rather more people there. Oh, you know, so they did kind of fill up the space. It wasn't just simply all these gaps. Um, there's also. Um, the no notion of non-violent direct action, you know, that you can trace through Shelley, through William Bembo, the Grand National Holiday. Uh, and indeed, when the Chartists occupied Manchester for several days in, in the club riots, you know, in 1842 disturbances, that gets a brief mention in Sunshine and Shadow in chapter 25, page 146. <laughs> and it's called the forcible interposition of the multitude. Now, if I'm right about the word interposition, I'm not quite sure what it means, but I think it means something like being in that place, like the forcible interposition of the multitude. The other thing is, of course, as you say, occupying literary space, I'm really finished now, um, where you're the subject rather than the object. You know, uh, the, the, the very last sentence of the novel, which I don't think you quoted, is, this novel has wiled away many an hour that might have been occupied, yeah? might have been occupied with unpleasant retrospections. It's not, so there's another mention of occupied. And because it mentions time there, I want to come back to a, a, a further point about these weekly communions. Because um, I think there's a kind of numerological point here. I could, could be just, I could be, could be just making this up, but Joe read out this rather rousing last uh, sentence from the rousing last paragraph. All hope is not lost. The earth still labours under the pangs of Travai and will ere long give birth, give birth to a new and better era. Which is clearly a sort of gestational metaphor, isn't it? Well, um, the paragraph begins, that paragraph begins for nine long months. Yeah. <laughs> now, is that... Is that coincidence? For nine long months we have held weekly communions with you. Now, although yes, it's, it's quite patriarchal in many ways, but I wonder if that sort of feminises the sense of production here. And there are critics who argue, of course, that they're periodicals with their sort of cyclical, sort of, are they linear, are they cyclical? You know, is it, is it, is it masculine, is it feminine? Um, finally, um, yeah, other examples of the political picaresque. So the obvious one to me is Mysteries of London, but that operates quite differently because that operates more by, you know, the conventions of popular fiction. Um, however, um, it's worth saying that uh, thinking of the uh, European dimension of you know, yeah, yeah. Wheeler's novel, uh, there is this sort of episode in Volume One of Mysteries of London where 
uh, Robert Mark and the hero founds an actual Italian republic. Yes. <laughs> it's brilliant, it's great, you know, called Castelti Cialo or something like that, yeah. The longer perspective, what happens to the picaresque, you know, political picaresque, I mean, probably all got our views on this, but as someone who's written a kind of survey of working class fiction, it's quite interesting, isn't it, to think this right through from, say, Pantisocracy to Milton Keynes or something, you know, sort of garden city movements, you know, William Morris. Uh, but I was thinking actually, that sort of, that's a little bit flippant. I was thinking more of um, the fact that could, what would have happened had the land plan been successful? What would have happened had they rehoused all those 70,000? I mean, one calculation is that it would have taken 150 years. Yes. <laughs> you know, but nevertheless, would it have been, once that's more populated, would it have been a town? So would it have become, you know, an urban, sort of urban environment? What would it have looked like? Um, what happens to the imaginary, the sort of top, topographical imaginary of, you know, the working class community? Because, you know, thinking of Stedman Jones, Gary Stedman Jones, his notion of the remake of the English working class, there it's very much about that sort of coronation street, sort of, you know, isn't it? Terrace houses, the pub, which was missing here, you know, the working men's club. Um, or is it that that, and in some ways that's a defensive. That's, that's almost seen as a negative because it's not that far from a slum, is it? Not that far from a slum, you know. And then the next big, then the next big wave is post-war, you know, post-Second World War. But what I'm interested, I just want to read it before I finish, is this phrase I came across, um, if I can find the, the right book. Yeah, give it up. The first estate, yeah? The first estate, because when they first uh, opened up uh, Heron's Gate to the Chartist public in August 1846, and it described as a jubilee, wasn't it? So that is a jubilee. Yeah. This is people weren't moving in. It was like the show home. <laughs> yeah. went, went to have a look at, 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 at their achievements. And uh, John Arnott, uh, who was a, a Chartist organizer, wrote this uh, poem for the occasion, which was read out, called "The People's First Estate." And um, I'll just read you the first. If I knew the tune, I'd sing it, seriously, but I don't know the tune. So it was a, Come let us leave the murky gloom, the narrow crowded street, the bustle noise, the smoke and din, to breathe the air that's sweet. We'll leave the gorgeous palaces to those miscalled great to spend a day of pleasure on the people's first estate. And the chorus is, On this estate the sons of toil shall independent be, enjoy the first fruits of the soil, from tyranny set free. The first estate, what a lovely phrase, isn't it? It's so redolent of all kinds of things, that, isn't it? But I love the revolutionary suggestion that we are now, we've moved to the top. Because it's not even the fourth estate, is it? Um, finally then, where am I, where am I speaking about uh, Chartism this summer? Um, well, two locations. One of them is here, would you believe? Yeah? So the Chartism Day this year, which I tend to go about every three years, is actually going to be in the, the modern version of sorry, where it looks like now. I don't think there's any photos of it now. This is, this is you know, the residence site. I don't think there's a photo now. You can obviously Google it. Um, you know, the last time I went there, though, um, I was chased out by a very large dog. <laughs> I don't know quite what to make of that yet. I felt distinctly unwelcome, I can tell you. Um, some of these chartered settlements are now gated communities. Oh. The sort of thing Ian Sinclair writes about, you know, in uh, 
London Orbital when he visits, you know, St George's Hill. <laughs> you can't even get, get, get into it. The other place is Florence, um, at the NASA, yeah, where I'll be speaking on a panel with uh, Ron Breton and Greg Vargo, with sort of usual suspects. Um, and, um, but the point, the point I'm mentioning that is because, um, yes, it's exotic, you might think, the Chartism, but in fact, the Chartists were always internationalists, like most radical movements. And I'll be talking on Linton, you know, W.J. Linton, yeah, yeah, yeah. who, of course, knew Mazzini, published Mazzini's work, you know, etc., etc. So I'll be talking about People's International League, you know. So there's a sense in which Chartism was always both local and international. 